Hello and welcome to another Medicine 360 podcast, a platform that explores the intersection between medicine and the arts. Today's podcast is hosted by me, Kat Marinison, a junior doctor currently based in Lancashire. In today's discussion on the role of shame within medicine, we are joined by three doctors at various stages of their career, Dr. Jonathan Tomlinson, Dr. Claire Ashley and Dr. Ishminder Mangat. Dr. Jonathan Tomlinson has been the full-time GP in Hackney in East London for over 20 years. Alongside his clinical work, he writes regularly for his blog, A Better NHS, which he started in order to better inform the general public about attempts to convert the NHS into a market economy. More recently, his focus has shifted to exploring the nature of the doctor-patient relationship, including topics such as shame. He also sits on the advisory board for Shame in Medicine, an interdisciplinary research project which researches the role of shame in various aspects of health and medicine, including clinical practice, patient experience, and medical student education. Dr. Claire Ashley has been working as a qualified GP based in Bristol since 2018 and has developed a portfolio career which includes roles such as an urgent care GP, digital GP, and her own businesses providing career mentoring services and a medical aesthetics clinic. Having previously struggled with stress and burnout, she is passionate about advocating for the mental health and well-being of healthcare professionals, particularly in view of the pressures that the COVID-19 pandemic has placed on the healthcare system. She regularly speaks on a variety of topics such as shame, stress management and burnout on multiple platforms including social media such as Instagram. Dr Ishminder Mangat is a junior doctor in Bristol. She is currently working as a clinical teaching fellow. She has an integrated degree in English Literature and Philosophy and is part of the Medicine 360 team. From her experiences as a junior doctor, she feels that shame has an enormous presence in medicine and is keen to open up the dialogue and reduce the stigma around this. Right, hello. So welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us today uh, on this podcast where we're going to be talking about shame in medicine. I thought we could start with or just sharing a few stories that might explore the different aspects of shame and the role it can play within medicine. So I'll go first. When I think about shame in medicine, um, for me, it centers a lot around making mistakes um, and that being a very common source of shame for myself. So uh, to give one example, when I was an F1, my first job was a really odd job in that it was quite unusual. So I didn't get much exposure on the wards. And then my second job was in Jerry. So it was the other end of just very, very busy. And I remember at that time I had through a miscommunication with a consultant, I prescribed a pain patch for a patient, which was uh, too strong a dose. And it was picked up and the patient didn't come to any you know, significant harm. But later on that day, um, they ended up having an episode of bradycardia. And it turned out that they had been prone to that anyway. But I just in that moment, and I still now remember this, this overwhelming um, sense of shame because I linked it so much to my mistake earlier And actually, Jonathan, when we spoke briefly before, you mentioned this idea that shame is a very embodied feeling. And that's definitely how I recall it, this kind of total physical feeling. So that's what comes to mind for me. And even though we're sort of told that we work in a no-blame culture, I felt definitely in the past that the unspoken culture of medicine reinforces shame and shaming around mistakes as well. So... Is anyone happy to share their own experience and or maybe to what extent shame has permeated their lives as a as a doctor? Um, Ish, do you want to start with one of your experiences maybe? Yeah, of course. So 
I think that you're completely right in what you've said, Kat, in that I do think there is this strong unspoken culture of blame. I think that shame trickles down to so many different aspects of being a doctor. The experience that probably sticks in my mind the most is when I was a few months into my foundation one year, um, I was on a surgical on-call shift and the emergency buzzer went off. And so I went to see the patient. The patient had had an episode of unresponsiveness. And I remember feeling that dread initially when the buzzer went off. I found that the patient was in her 90s. Um, she wasn't for resuscitation, but I did my A2E assessment. Unfortunately, she became more and more unstable. Her blood pressure and plummeted. Her heart rate dropped a lot as well. I rang the medical registrar and I also rang um, my senior house officer. Unfortunately, they were both tied up with really unwell patients, so they were unable to come and support me because it was out of hours. There was no one else really around. I followed their advice and I did my best to treat her. But unfortunately, despite these efforts, she continued to deteriorate. And unfortunately, she ended up passing away. The nurses around me definitely wanted me to palliate her a lot earlier than I eventually did um, because they recognised that she was dying before I did. The medical registrar eventually did come shortly before she passed away and he reviewed the patient. He looked at all the notes um, and the investigation results that I'd done and he concluded that he wasn't sure what was going on either. Um, He said that he didn't think I could have done anything differently Despite his reassurance, I was still left with a strong feeling of shame. And it was partly shame because I didn't feel like I got to the bottom of what was going on. I also didn't pick up quickly enough that she was actually dying and that there was nothing I could do to stop that. But even despite me realising that, I still felt ashamed that I hadn't managed to save her life. And I think that part of the reason I felt like this is because I don't think that medical school adequately prepares you for how to deal with it when you're not able to save a patient. And I think that because of that, a lot of the time in these situations, the predominant feeling from doctors is shame and a sense of failure. And I think this is exacerbated by the fact that we often aren't given space to discuss these kind of events and explore the impact that it's had on us. And there just isn't really that support available because the healthcare system is so stretched as it is. I think what you're saying there about that sense of failure is a really common experience. And I know, Claire, you do a lot of work in terms of on social media, talking about your own experiences, specifically around stress and burnout. And I know from having followed you that that sense of failure has been a really kind of key component of that for you in terms of your experiences as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you both have described some clinical scenarios, isn't it, where you felt kind of shame and and guilt um, around the care of those patients, even though actually from a clinical point of view, it sounds like things were relatively well managed. But from from where I come from and from my point of view, um, shame and guilt had a huge role in my experience of burnout. I think, first of all, when I started to burnout, I didn't recognise what was happening to me. And then as I started to feel worse what I did was I worked harder and that's what guilt and shame does to you you know I spent my entire you know adult life working towards being a GP and being a fully quite qualified doctor it's all, all I'd ever wanted to do and you know medicine still very much is my my number one passion and it's what what gives me fire in my belly and you know caring for my patients is what you know gets me up in the mornings and it's what I get a lot of pleasure from but then as I started to burn out, I and was developing all of these negative feelings around my work and, you know, when I was suffering with loss of empathy, 
the guilt and the shame that came alongside that fueled me into working harder and to trying to prove to myself that actually these feelings were wrong and I, I would try I tried to repress them. Um, and the guilt and the shame led me into maladaptive behaviors that then just perpetuated and fueled my burnout even more. And then when I got to a stage when my symptoms were so overwhelming that I couldn't really continue to work or function in, in any kind of meaningful way um, that was helpful to either my family, myself or to my patients, the guilt and the shame stopped me from doing the things that I needed to do to get better. And particularly in terms of taking time off work, which I absolutely should have done, I didn't feel that I was able to because I felt guilty about the fact that I would be directly impacting on my patient list. So I had my own patient list. I didn't feel like I could abandon them. I also didn't feel like I could put my workload onto my colleagues and put them under even more stress. And I just felt so ashamed that I wasn't able to cope. But looking back, I realized that my medical training failed me in that respect. It didn't give me the tools to recognize what was happening to me. It didn't give me the skills to to stop it at an earlier stage or to recognize it. it. Didn't give me the tools to manage it. And then once things had got to the point where I had to kind of stop working and I had to take stock and as in a crisis point, it then stopped me from doing the things that I needed to do to get better. And it, it actively worked against me. So for me, the biggest way that guilt and shame has impacted on my, my medical practice has been with regards to my burnout and, and my attempts at recovery. I think that's a good moment as well, actually, to draw a bit of a definition between guilt and shame, because they are subtly different in that guilt is um, I have done something bad and shame is I am bad. So it's very much a, an internalized feeling. What, what comes through to me for, from both of your stories is something that we actually touched on briefly yesterday um, with Jonathan as well in terms of the narrative we tell ourselves as healthcare professionals and the kind of the role of the doctor and what is that what that is perceived to be. If I hear failure, then I hear what is it you are supposed to have achieved? What have you failed to achieve? And therefore, what is the story we tell ourselves as someone inhabiting the doctor role? And I know that's something you spoke of beautifully about yesterday, Jonathan. My experience is, I, th I think, more fortunate than uh, you guys, because I can't look back at my career and mistakes that I've made and say that I identify shame as being a particularly strong emotion or experience that I had in relation to that. Um, when you began, you, you talked about a mistake you made. I suppose you could distinguish guilt as a mistake you make and shame as being the mistake that you are. And I work in a deprived part of East London and have a particular interest in shame and trauma and all the attendant problems like addiction and chronic pain that, that go with it. And so I, most of my experiences come from my patients and from their experiences of shame rather than my own. And so my interest and, and concern was how does one respond in the face of shame or when you're confronted by shame or you bear witness to it and how might we bear witness to, to shame uh, and to people that are experiencing it. And as Claire said, one thing that you very often see, if not the shame, is the attempt to repair or to manage feelings of shame. And for some people, that sense of being a mistake or not worthy or being an imposter can lead to somebody thinking, I, I don't deserve your care. I don't you know, I don't deserve the attention that you're giving me. And so patients are very mistrusting or suspicious about somebody who's trying to help them. And it can be a real barrier to care. So when I'm thinking about looking after patients with addiction or serious mental health problems or complex lives that are full of 
trauma and, and have a history of abuse, they're very suspicious of somebody who tempts wholeheartedly to say, I'm here to help you. And they think, well, you know, really? And also shame because it's associated with these things has often come from a place where somebody has been betrayed by somebody who was in a position to provide care or ought to have been providing care or looking after them or nurturing them. And instead, they did the opposite. So I see it in terms of what's often very difficult relationships with really highly vulnerable people. And so my interest didn't come about from my own experience of suffering shame reactions myself, but rather from wanting to do a better job for people whose lives were full of shame. I think that's really interesting, though, as well, because a lot of what you said there about your experiences with patients, for me, sort of paralleled, maybe Claire, a little bit what you were feeling. I know, you know, not maybe not in terms of addiction or even complex trauma, but this feeling you were saying that you felt unable to take that time for yourself because of the shame or I don't know I don't want to put words in your mouth but maybe un kind of undeserving of that kind of care when you become yourself unwell then where do you fall on that line I don't know if you found if you felt that there were any parallels in what Jonathan was saying in terms of trying to hide and yeah not feeling able to be cared for um yeah you're not putting words in my mouth that is very much how I felt and to an extent still feel actually and it's taken a lot of reflective work and working with practitioner health and with my therapist to undo that because I one of the quotes that uh, that Jonathan just said that really stuck with me which is guilt is the mistake you make and shame is the mistake you are I had gotten to that pattern of thinking you know I'm I'm not able to do to deliver the care I want to my patients and I felt guilty about that and I thought, oh gosh, I'm being really terrible at this. I'm I'm not I'm doing a bad job. And then in my head, that meant that I was a bad person. And it's taken a long time to undo that pattern of thinking and to and to recover from that. And also both you and Jonathan are GPs. And I'm really interested in Jonathan what you were saying about recognizing that shame is such a plays such a large role in a lot of the consultations. Claire, do you feel like your experiences of shame personally, have, have they changed at all in the way that you recognise it in the consulting room or, or is it something that you weren't really kind of aware of before and it's brought that out for you? Yeah, I think I would say that I'm a very, or at least I try to be an empathetic and compassionate, kind doctor. And I think going through my experiences that I have with burnout and with mental health problems, I, I do see things differently from a patient point of view. I appreciate how vulnerable they feel when they come to consult with us and how hard it is to open up about these sorts of things. I didn't feel that I could go and speak to my GP when I was in that place. And that's because I felt, again, ashamed. And I didn't want to go and burden my GP with my problems when they were working in the same job that I was and subject to the same pressures. And I don't I'm very open on social media about and to other healthcare professionals about what I've been through. I don't necessarily share my journey with my patients. I normally keep that to myself, but I do really take the time to listen to them. And sometimes the consultation itself is the therapy, isn't it? When patients are feeling in that position. And like Jonathan, actually, until very recently, I worked in very deprived areas. I was a health inequalities fellow um, in the BNSSG area. And I do understand where he's coming from with those patients quite often there is a lot of shame when these patients present to us and as doctors it's part of our clinical responsibility to recognize that and to work with it and to provide good care for these patients. I was I was just thinking actually the first time I came across it was in the mid-1990s a GP I think from near Winchester called Joe Kai 
wrote some qualitative papers for the British Medical Journal about the experiences of parents who were bringing sick children to the GP. And the conclusion from these papers was that they experienced the doctor as giving a moral judgment on their ability as a parent as well as a clinical judgment. And it struck me very strongly at that time that in so many social interactions, particularly when there's an imbalance of power, that the patient seeing the doctor who's all powerful, that almost always there's a mixture of clinical and moral judgments going on. And with the parent, with the sick child, the parent wasn't even the patient, but they kind of take on that role when they bring a child in. And then these usually mothers were judged on their abilities as mothers. Are you the good mother that brings your child in not too soon so that you're not wasting the doctor's time, but not so late that you've put your child at risk? And that Goldilocks zone in the middle is almost impossible to achieve because you're either failure as a time waster or you're a failure as an irresponsible parent. And what a dreadful dilemma that was. And then I um, started to have my own patient list and get to know patients very well. We describe general practice as ultra short and ultra long. So short encounters over a long period of time. And you get to know your patients and have different kinds of conversations. And you realize how often they come away from another experience uh, with a healthcare professional feeling judged in a way that was so awful that they would never want to go back. And so you often find that patients who are shame prone, because I think there is a thing of shame proneness where you have had previous experiences of shame, which make you acutely sensitive to moral judgments of other people in future interactions. And being chronically anxious does that to you, who repeatedly attend different parts of the healthcare system to avoid the experience of the shaming that happened under that particular department or that particular doctor or nurse or whatever in the past. And there's a good literature on this. There are certain patients for whom this is acutely uh, important. Patients who are very overweight, for example, patients who suffer with serious mental illnesses or addiction and, and so on. You know, because shame is part of the trauma world, which includes maladaptive coping that Claire talked about. Um, so you would see people stuck in fight or flight or they're shut down, but also toxic shame is a part of that. So another important thing is whenever you're in a consultation, remember that you're there as a kind of a moral judge as well as a clinical decision maker or a clinical judge. Another reason that we kind of gathered this little panel is to get a broad range in terms of experience and kind of length of practicing and therefore also experience of medical education. And that paper you mentioned from the 90s, the kind of moral judgment, I wonder whether if they were to repeat that study, whether there would be similar results now, because I know from Ish and I, from our generation of medical education, at least for me, there was a big move in my medical school around um, combating paternalism and having that patient-centered care, not to use buzzwords, but that making you aware of the experience that patients have of being judged. I, Ish, I don't know if you had a similar experience of becoming more aware of what you project within a consultation. Yeah, I don't know if actually I did have enough of that education in medical school because I thought, yeah, what you were saying, Jonathan, there was really fascinating. And I didn't really think about it as much in terms of extending to so many different consultations. For example, you mentioned the mother and the child coming in and the mother feeling that sense of shame and that sense of judgment. And I think that to me has highlighted how it lurks hidden in actually so many different consultations, even ones where we wouldn't necessarily expect it. So no, actually, I don't really feel I've had adequate training on thinking about the moral judgment that the doctor gives, unless it's 
scenarios where we would almost expect it more in cases of addiction and things like that? Well, I'm a, I'm a parent as well as a doctor and I have two sons aged 10 and 12. So moral judgment is about moral language and it's about the inability to separate the person from the act. So you made a mistake, you are a mistake. You did a bad thing, you're a bad person. You didn't clear up, you're a lazy child. Do you see what I mean? And so we failed, or I hands up, fail to make these distinctions the way that a good parent should. And so I have much more shame associated with my parenting skills than I do with my medical skills because I'm I'm kind of in a role as a doctor, but as a parent when I'm exhausted in the evening and um, I've lost all my empathy because I used it all up during the day. <laughs> I'm constantly doing all these making all these shaming statements and I hate myself for it. I mean, that's, I, okay, so now you've got me with my, yes, I do feel shame. It is, it's in there. But it's it's shame about shaming because you know just what a dreadful, awful thing that is to do as a parent. And I think shaming in medical education again, and it would be brilliant just to involve, say, a linguist or a good qualitative researcher to record the language and the words that are used in medical educational interactions to see how much of that language is about moral about the judging you as the kind of person that you are where you're just you know people like you are just rubbish or i notice you you know you never really pay attention so not talking about your knowledge or your skills but rather your attributes or your moral character and so when somebody drives you nuts you want to kind of change their behavior shame is a powerful tool and so you invoke it but if you do that too much to a child you can't help doing it a tiny bit but if you do it repeatedly and you do it all the time they will in they will internalize that sense well actually i am a bad lazy naughty awful child and and then speaking from very personal experience you know one of my my older son when he talks about himself like that you think oh my god what have i done to him you know, does he put himself down and say, I'm rubbish, I'm useless, I'm ugly, I'm stupid? Is that my fault? And that's that's a horrendous kind of feeling or sense of shame. I mean, that's that's certainly worse than anything I experienced as a doctor. And as a parent, do you feel, you know, that example you used about taking a child to the doctors, do you feel there's anything about an interaction with, say, the healthcare field that is feels more shaming than an interaction with, I don't know, another with a school or something, another aspect of parenting. Do you feel like there is a difference or, or do you feel like as a parent you're quite prone to, to, to feeling shame in kind of all aspects of parenting? It's about vulnerability. So shame and vulnerability are two things that go together. So somebody who's feeling vulnerable is automatically kind of going to be more prone to shame. So part of feeling vulnerable is feeling precariously balanced between being a good person and a bad person, between being a success or being a failure. And it only takes a little push, you know, the wrong word, the wrong statement, the the wrong look. Any, you know, any subtle cue will be interpreted as a judgment. If you think about being in a state of fight or flight, it's a self-preservation, neurological, physiological state. You've got to be ready to respond without having to think about it. So anything that looks or sounds threatening to you as a moral individual will automatically trigger that protective response and you will shut down or dissociate or want to, to do something, get out of that situation normally. And what happens in a consultation is the GP and the patient both become simultaneously extremely uncomfortable and the doctor will do whatever it takes to get the patient out of the room. Here, have a prescription. I will refer you. Don't worry. Um, Have a sick note. Whatever it takes. Goodbye. Thanks. 
and the patient will look very dissatisfied and, and you will both feel that something it was a, just a dreadful consultation but you might not name it or name shame because I think that that element of vulnerability that you said plays a key role I know again from personal experience and actually from a lot of my friends that there is there can there can be a lot of shaming in medical education and then talking about vulnerability it is interesting that perhaps within medical education you feel more vulnerable than if you were being trained up in another position I don't know if that's true I'm just propositioning that because I think that's why maybe your people can be more prone to shame within medical education if that makes sense and I just wonder why why that is and I'm personally quite interested in kind of professional identity as well and the way that it's often very very intertwined within medicine with who you are as a person because you are from the start of your career on such a different track. And I could see you nodding vigorously as well as Jonathan was talking, Claire. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that our training, our working culture perpetuates shame. It also perpetuates perfectionism, which we haven't touched on yet, which is kind of, I think, the ugly sister of of guilt and and shame you know and if you look at certain specialties I'm going to pluck one out of the air randomly so surgery in particular I've you know I think that perfectionism is often identified as an important attribute and that people who end up in surgical training are quite often learning to be a perfectionist you know they learn that minor errors should be avoided precision and faultlessness are to be valued but unfortunately you're human and, and you can't achieve those things all the time and when you can't that then perpetuates these feelings of guilt guilt and shame isn't it and I think you know in med- you know talking about guilt and shame in medical education I think there is a lot of shame related to learning in both medical school and in postgraduate training so there are lots of things that might trigger this off for for you know doctors in training you know things like inadequate test scores we've all been on ward rounds where you know you've been asked a question in front of a patient or in front of your peers and your colleagues and you get it wrong and then the consultant like reams you out and you just want to die and you want the floor to open up and to to swallow you whole going to meetings receiving negative or critical feedback the way in which it's delivered which I think is gradually changing but there is definitely an element of of education by shame still and I think that the fact that perfectionism is kind of trained for into our um, education system and our, our training plus the fact that we then have very old school methods of teaching still that that are used perhaps inappropriately means that quite often the people that are on the receiving end of this are quite critical of themselves and and feel deficient when you're unable to make meet these kind of unobtainable goals. I completely agree with a lot of what you were saying, Claire, and I can definitely empathise with those feelings of being told off by a consultant in front of a large group of people when you've got something wrong in front of a patient, and it's so humiliating. But also what you were saying, Kat, made me think about the processes of dissection and prosection in medical school and how those kind of educational activities encourage a certain degree of attachment, a detachment. But also, I was discussing this with my students last week, and it's that idea that when you start doing those experiences, uh, when you start having those experiences, rather, it sets you aside from other students in the university. And it's this really different and kind of bizarre experience in a way, you know, dealing with dead bodies. Um, And my students were talking about the way that there was no emotional support for dealing with these um, cadaverous body parts and actually how they felt a lot of shame when they were unable to speak out about difficulties they might have experienced doing this. 
it made me think that actually showing emotion in general in medical school and beyond is seen as a sign of weakness. Can I, can I just add something there, Rish? Um, the University of Bristol is changing its medical curriculum and how teaching is delivered. I'm sure you're aware of this. So I also work as an effective consulting tutor for the University of Bristol. I have a group of year one students and a year two group as well. And Bristol's been quite innovative at the moment in changing medical education to account for that. The entire whole of the first term for the first year medical students has been about compassion and kindness for self and others. So they get it right at the start of their medical education. And they also go straight into clinical practice as well. So they spent the first time in a GP surgery, just basically having conversations with patients, learning to have conversations that are based in compassion and kindness, and also about demonstrating kindness to yourself and to your colleagues. And the students have responded really well to this teaching. And I've had quite a lot of students come up to me after the sessions to say how much they've enjoyed it, but also sharing things that are that are happening to them and being open about it Um, and they're just really appreciating the opportunity to have that type of education obviously this curriculum is completely new and it's yet to be followed through and and we've yet to see how this then affects their practice as doctors when they do qualify but I'm really impressed to see it now being actively taught from day one in medical school. And just jumping off the back of that Claire because I'm aware that we between us we're coming at it from two slightly different points of view because Jonathan I know you're talking a lot about recognizing shame in the patient base whereas perhaps we focus more on shame from the practitioner side you mentioned before Jonathan that experience of both parties in the room feeling very uncomfortable and wanting the experience to be over as soon as possible whether having more of education on what shame is and how it presents itself and how to cope with that from the practitioner point of view, do you think that will influence how doctors are able to deal with the shame that patients carry in the consultation room? Or is that something you've noticed in over your own practice? So medical education has a lot of medical ethics education in it. In a, in a way, I, you know, I don't know for sure that I guess if you did an architecture or engineering or chemistry degree, you wouldn't have so much ethics built into the course. Like it runs through the whole of medical practice. So what you do or whether you make a mistake or who you choose to spend time with, what drugs you allocate to what person, how much responsibility or autonomy you allow somebody, you know, there are ethical, moral decisions going on all the time. And that's in addition to kind of the moral judgments that you might make about patients and their behavior. For example, the patient that comes in to see you wanting help with weight loss, who leaves feeling blamed for their weight and their situation and for not taking good enough care of themselves, for being a bad person that's been shamed by your behaviour. Or the person who comes in for help with addiction, who's made to feel you know worse rather than better after they've been to see you. So I think that medicine is particularly tied up with kind of moral judgment and moral behaviour and moral decision making, which is really important. And... It means that it's kind of shame is inevitable. So that would be one thing. Another thing is that, you know, Kate mentioned that surgeons perhaps are particularly prone to perfectionism. And yet my knowledge of the practitioner health program is that the specialties with most doctors presenting for help with mental health and associated problems of shame are GPs and pediatricians. And I don't know if any of you have read the the book by John Berger called A Fortunate Man, The Story of a Country GP. But that's the story of a wounded healer whose wounds you're not made aware of. They're not explicitly stated. But he says in the book that Berger, through trying to heal others, is trying to heal himself. 
And that's a very common thing that you see in people who work within mental health and primary care and pediatrics in particular. It's also there in other specialties, but those interactional relational specialties in which the practitioner is the therapeutic agent are the ones where very often there are people trying to repair their feelings of inadequacy uh, and unworthiness through healing others. And there's a very nice critique of the, the Berger book, which describes the archetype of a wounded healer doctor as one who in their early childhood had to provide care for somebody like their mother, for example, or a sibling and had to take on a role of caring and looking after at a point in their time when they should have been on the receiving end of that care. And so they grew up thinking actually they didn't really need much care themselves, that they could kind of cope, they were very strong, and that they were good at healing and caring for others. So it was natural for them to choose to move into a profession where they did that. But because they are not yet healed, and otherwise they haven't dealt with their early wounding and are, are incapable of receiving care, they are particularly prone to burnout, especially when confronted, as you inevitably will, by patients who just don't get better or even resent your attempts to kind of care or look after them. And that can be extremely triggering. So I would sort of slightly disagree with the surgeon perfectionist archetype, or maybe it's easier to deal with in a more technical specialty, but surgeons, of course, do burn out. And when they do, they burn out quite badly. I remember reading A Fortunate Man, I think before I even applied to medical school ages ago, but I'd totally forgotten and I read about recently that at the end, the GP that, that it's about, he's he actually dies by suicide. Am I right in thinking that? Because he his key role and his whole purpose to his life is to take care of the village. And when he feels unable to do that, he feels unable to go on. I do think that, and I'd be interested to hear everyone's thoughts on this, that there is perhaps something endemic in the way that healthcare is structured, that it maybe capitalizes on people's, not that everyone who comes to medicine is a wounded healer, but if they have that sort of drive to give and almost the drive to give almost comes from a desire to prove one's own worth. And I feel like actually a lot of the way healthcare is set up, it capitalizes on that and capitalizes on people's goodwill or people's desire to go beyond what, what should be expected of them. But I don't know what, what other people think about that. There's a great interview with Renee Brown and I think it's Russell Brand, but there's a point there where she says she did some research and got together a panel of people that had been identified by their peers as being exceptionally compassionate people. And the one thing they had in common, which surprised her at the time, but not now, was that they were all incredibly good with boundaries. So one problem with wounded healers who themselves are unhealed is that they're very, very bad at boundaries. And they kind of think by having no boundaries, that makes them kind of more compassionate and they can offer more of themselves. And only by offering more of themselves can they prove themselves worthy. But when they got together this panel of sort of uber compassionate people, um, they were incredibly good at boundaries. I think boundaries are yeah very important in the NHS and I agree exactly with what you said earlier Kat about the NHS being propped up on goodwill. I can just think of so many instances as a junior doctor and I've seen it so much with my colleagues as well where you're just expected to work overtime. I remember once being really shocked I'd done a 13 and a half hour night shift as um, an F1 and I was seeing the new patients who had come into hospital overnight so the new patients who'd come in through A&E and at the end of that shift 
the consultant coming in in the morning expected me to stay on um, to do what is called post-take. So that's when the consultant then comes to review the patients that you've seen overnight. And I was just, I was so exhausted. I was pretty much falling asleep whilst I was writing the notes. I was barely able to concentrate on what the consultant was saying. And I definitely wasn't a safe doctor at that point in time. And I was just astounded that there wasn't any recognition of the fact that I'd just done a 13 and a half hour night shift. I should be able to go home. But I also didn't really feel like I was able to speak up and say that. And in the end, I ended up staying on for an extra hour. I was eventually able to leave because a junior colleague took pity on me and offered to step in. But I was angry with myself for not saying anything to the consultant. And I was ashamed that I wasn't able to do this. But I think that it's partly because of a culture that infiltrates medicine from the top down, where I think some senior clinicians definitely expect people to work extra hours and be okay with that. And there's almost this sense that we should sometimes behave as martyrs. And it's partly because some of those senior clinicians have had horrendous working patterns as junior doctors themselves. They've sometimes been having to work for five days on call without ever getting any kind of break and I think and I've heard them say to myself and other junior colleagues that well you've got it lucky it's all right for you now it's so much better than it was but I think just because there were these really unsustainable and unhealthy working patterns in the past it doesn't mean that it should set a precedent for the future and I just think that that kind of attitude is really unhelpful really difficult to deal with. One thing that was different between the old doctors who worked five days in a row, and I'm hands up, I'm 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 one of those, was that it was a very strong team-based system then. So it was very collegiate, and and the work was less intense. So shorter hours of more intense, more isolated work is more stressful than longer hours of more collegiate, uh, less intense work. So isolation and intensity are kind of killers. But we do need flexibility, and you know, I think I think boundaries are one thing compassion is another thing and there's an overlap but that you, you can't fix one by focusing on the other I think just briefly because I do want to talk about maybe the impact of COVID as well because from both the healthcare and from patient-based perspective but just talking about that kind of collegiate because I'm interested in that I'm also a big fan of Brene Brown she is uh, such an interesting social scientist and she talks a lot about shame as a result of feeling a lack of belonging I would love to hear everyone's thoughts that practice has become more isolated through a loss of that kind of firm based, you know, you had one team and you had one consultant and you were a part of that little group. And now because they're trying to make working hours fairer and so on and so on, it's much more shift based and you don't often feel a connection to your colleagues. And I wonder if a lot of kind of experiences of shame within healthcare professionals is because you don't feel supported by your colleagues because you don't know them. And so you are automatically scared of not belonging because you don't have that kind of security of seeing, oh, well, they've seen me on a good day. They've seen me on a bad day. They know that I'm not, you know, that this one mistake is not me as a whole person or a whole practitioner. I don't know if that rings true at all. Shame needs a witness. So, you know, the, the witness bears judgment and that witness can kind of validate or more importantly vindicate so vindication is when you experience somebody relieving you of shame it's not your fault the reason you're like this is not you know you're not addicted to drugs because 
you're a bad person. You, you haven't tried to kill yourself because you shouldn't be here and you don't deserve to be alive. You're not working yourself to death because anybody who does any less than that is a bad doctor. So vindication is the role of the witness confronted by shame. And so to not have a witness is to be stuck with your shame because the, the, the witness is, is what can lift you out of that. You can't, you know, it's like trying to lift yourself out of a hole by pulling your hair up on the top of your head. You can't do that. And so repairing shame on your own is almost certainly not possible and often the kind of witnesses you need so power makes a difference having somebody in a position of moral authority to say you know what i think you're an amazing person and what you're doing and how you're trying to cope um under the circumstances and from what you've been through i mean that's extraordinary so that that's important as well but but having the vindication of your peers is really important as well. And that matters a lot in medicine. You know, there's a, there's a kind of phase where you go through and you make a terrible mistake as a doctor and you can't be a doctor without making mistakes. And then you join a community of practice in which you can say, you know what, I've made mistakes too. And that's the nature of medicine. And it's not because you're a bad person. And so you know where you stand in relation to your peers and you know that your peers are there for you and they're going to support you and they're going to help you deal with it. So the role of, of, of a witness and the role of vindication in shame is massively important. Um, and the flip side, just very briefly, would be sort of invalidation, where you're made to feel a fraud or a liar uh, or inauthentic or insincere or whatever. And that there's some nice research from Paul Dieppe at Exeter University showing how invalidation is more harmful to one's sense of sort of moral identity than, than validation is good. So... Um, so that's really, really powerful. So experiencing invalidation is really harmful. So I completely agree. Isolation is, is disastrous and, and connection, as Brenny Brown would say, is key. And I get the sense that that's very much what you're trying to do, Claire, with your social media and that that sense of validation of reaching out across to people with a similar experience to yours, or maybe not even similar, but just feeling in that same space. Yeah, absolutely. I felt very lonely, very isolated when I was going through my burnout. And I certainly didn't feel at the time that I was able to talk about it publicly. I was in a very dark place, but now I'm coming out the other side. It is one of my passions to share what has happened to me and to make sure that other healthcare professionals and, you know, if they are experiencing the same, that they don't feel quite so lonely and isolated. It's a really horrible place to be, um, particularly if you're on your own. And I think certainly you mentioned there about COVID and, and how COVID has a, has changed things for healthcare professionals. One of the things that it has stripped us, not just in terms of our working practice, but it's also about how we access our peer support. So, you know, for instance, when I was an F1, we'd go to the pub after work or we'd have at least a monthly social where we'd all go out for dinner. We all knew each other. We might not be working together on a daily basis, but we did all know each other. You just don't have that ability to do that anymore. We're either working incredibly long hours or because of various lockdowns or restrictions that have been placed on us, it's not been safe to go and socialise. And you can access peer support in different ways. So I know there's a lot of stuff that happens online now, but it's not quite the same as, as in-person support. So part of the reason why I'm, I'm very open about my journey is because of that sense of isolation and feeling completely alone and it just being a very uncomfortable place to be. And I certainly know that there are, you know, judging from the state of my DMs on Instagram, I know that there are a lot of people out there that feel that, like that. I think ironically, even though COVID was a time where there was the most physical distance between us at work, I think it was a time where I felt the most camaraderie 
And I think it was because people were so aware of the effects of lockdown, the effects of this isolation, but people were taking the time and the effort to be kinder than ever before was how it felt where I was working. So, so many different consultants would try and bring us together by having a daily baking venture. So they would bring in cakes and we would gather together in a distance way to share it. But I agree in general that with the shift patterns in medicine, you are working in ever-changing teams. Whereas again, I guess the difference for me in COVID times was we had a defense rotor and they structured it the way they do with the army. So we were with the same team for all the times that we were working. So I guess that also made a huge difference because you did have that continuity of peer support. It was the same people there every day. I was thinking also what Jonathan was saying about the importance of vindication and helping to reduce shame. I think that having that vindication, as you mentioned, um, Jonathan, from senior colleagues is also exceptionally important. And I do think that part of the reason that junior doctors feel shame is because there's a general lack of feedback in medicine and often you only get feedback if you've done something wrong. So whilst no news is good news, no news doesn't help you to boost your self-confidence and your self-esteem and it doesn't help you to improve your clinical abilities. And I think that over time, this lack of feedback actually just sows these seeds of low self-esteem and frustration and a growing sense that you are inadequate. And I, I think over a longer term, that's what leads to feelings of job dissatisfaction, burnout, and potentially longer term mental health problems. I'm aware that we're just coming to the end of our time here and we've covered so many different things. I would just love to hear from everyone whether anyone has any thoughts on it. I think it's clear from what we've talked about. Shame is, I mean, shame is a part of the human experience and it's almost inevitable. And definitely, as you said, Jonathan, it's so linked to vulnerability that in such a vulnerable space as healthcare, it's going to be an inevitable part of the range of emotions that play a role. Looking at it, how, whether you want to look at it more from within healthcare professionals or within a patient base, but what are people's thoughts on how we can work with shame and try to make it a less corrosive part of clinical practice? Ish, do you want to start us off? That's a really good question, Kat. I think part of it is having conversations like this where we're opening up the dialogue around it and hopefully reducing the stigma around it. But I think it needs to be part of conversations between both senior and junior doctors, which is what this is today. If we carry on those conversations into medical school and start in medical education as you're doing, Claire, then I think that that will make a huge difference over time. But I don't think it will change overnight. I think it will be quite a gradual process. What about you, Claire? Um, what Ish said, basically. I can see change happening already. You know, I think that a lot of the medical students and younger doctors, I'm seeing them viewing mental health problems and issues around guilt and shame very differently to perhaps more experienced doctors who've gone through more traditional medical education. And I think that medical schools are actively looking to change their curriculum so that these conversations are started from very early on in, in their medical education. And, and I think that, you know, when it comes to change, it starts with conversation. And then that moves towards action. I think we're probably straddling the conversation action point at, um, at this moment in time. And so what I'd really like to see is that momentum carrying through. You know, we've started having the conversations. We're starting to break down some, some of the stigma. What we now need to see is it moving into action and actually translating into different outcomes for students, for doctors and for, for patients as well. 
I've got three thoughts. One is recognize what shame is. So it's a sort of moral character judgment that's internalized and recognize what shame feeds on, which is other people confirming that negative moral character judgment and pay really close attention to conversations within clinical practice and medical education and the media where where, where these kind of shaming comments are made all the time and just notice how often that happens. Second thing is shame proneness is a thing. So toxic shame is shame that is triggered because of early life experiences where you started off from the very beginning of life feeling that you are unworthy of love, care, attention, affection, respect, and so on. So think about where shame comes from. Because if you had a solid, stable, uh, unproblematic early life without any of those feelings, then shame you experience later on will be something you can deal with quite easily or relatively compared to those people for whom every subsequent shaming experience brings back that deep-seated conviction that actually I'm a bit of a mistake. And finally, especially during COVID, remember that when you're stressed and tired and exhausted and in a rush, you're much more prone to shame other people or to blame them for the way that you feel. And so there's a lot of transference and counter-transference that goes on. And, you know, that goes back to my being a bad dad after 13 hours of being a nice GP. So I think those those would be my three kind of key key things. Wonderful. Thank you so much for all your time. Thank you to Claire, Ish and Jonathan for joining us and thank you for listening to our latest Medicine 360 podcast. If you are interested in reading more about some of the topics we discussed today, please check out the Shame in Medicine project run by the Universities of Exeter and Birmingham on shameinmedicine.org. Jonathan has a blog which discusses shame amongst many other things titled A Better NHS. To learn more about the role of shame and guilt in burnout and recovery, please follow Claire on Instagram at Dr. Claire Ashley or via her website, drclaireashley.com. As Medicine 360 is focused on the intersection of medicine and the arts, we have included a list of books which may provide a greater insight into shame from both a practitioner and patient's perspective. These are listed in the show notes. Finally, if you would like to learn more about medicine and the humanities, please visit medicine360.co.uk. We look forward to seeing you next time.